What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 242 of Two Amazon Sellers and a Microphone, brought to you by Solozo. And I'm I'm flying solo today. My my colleague Chris is uh, still out. He's on on vacation. So, uh, but this is gonna be great. This is one of my favorite topics. So I'm I'm actually kind of excited to be running solo on this. I have lots, lots, and lots of questions. Uh, we're continuing our conversation. We've had a few guests talking about online arbitrage recently, and we're continuing it. We're going to be talking about the state and the future of online arbitrage, which I'm very excited to, to learn more about. And joining me to discuss all of these things is Jason Sloan from The Profit Mine. What's up, Jason? How are you? Hey, Dustin. Thanks for having me on. I'm really glad to be here, my man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm excited, too. This is really good timing for, for me personally. Uh, this is why I love doing this podcast is because we just talk to other people in the space network. And we really, I mean, there's a lot of things I'm doing right now with online arbitrage. I just recently started, uh, not that recent, six, six, seven months ago. Um, but as a primarily private label seller, there's, there's a lot of uh, learning curves in, in online arbitrage. And so it's a very different thought process, a very different methodology um, so I'm, I've got tons of questions for you. I'm, I can't wait to dive in, but before we do all that, I'd love to give you a second, uh, for those that don't know you, that don't know about the profit mine, interested in online arbitrage, how'd you get into it? What, what's your story? What were you doing before you got into it and, and how did it evolve? Yeah. Long story short of the cliff notes version. I, you know, was, a I was in retail management and some other careers before I got involved in selling online. I guess probably full-time about seven years ago now. And um, I think that, you know, I resisted Amazon for a while. <laughs> I was actually selling quite a bit on eBay. I kind of made a name for myself for uh, just selling on eBay and a, and a YouTube channel and so on. But I realized at some point that I knew lots of people who were selling and doing decently on eBay, but the people I knew who were legitimately selling millions of dollars were Amazon sellers. There were no eBay sellers that big that I knew, and there were very few in general. So I, I got involved in selling on Amazon, and you know I took the traditional route that most people did. You start with things around your house. You find things in thrift stores. You go to stores, do some retail arbitrage, and so on, which was all well and good. Did books for quite a while as well, which is a very common way to get started selling on Amazon. But I realized at some point that my time is more valuable than the amount of items I can go find. So I needed a different way. And it so happened that when we moved, my fiance and I, we moved to the coast, my retail arbitrage opportunities got very small. Mm. So I, it, it, it would, it would take me probably two hours to get to anywhere of any size to really source a lot of RA. And I just didn't think that was a wise use of my time. So I started doing OA online arbitrage and having items shipped straight to my house prepping them, shipping them into Amazon FBA. And I took the traditional route. I think that a lot of people did. I joined a couple groups. I got on some OA lead list, but I found that the lead list, while some value, there were lots of things that were wrong with them that I didn't really care for that were impacting my ability to grow. So I guess around the end of last year, December, I decided, you know, put your money where your mouth is. If you've got a problem with it, solve the problem. So I decided to venture out on my own and see if I could produce OA leads on my own. Um, I went through the traditional 
you know, using tactical arbitrage and manual sourcing on my own, but I also realized very quickly that that wasn't really what I was good at, nor was it I wanted to spend a lot of time at. So I started building my own team to produce online arbitrage leads. And it just was a natural extension from that, I think, to, to be able to share the processes I put in place to become much better, to get a much better OA leads list, I think. I guess I'm biased for my own list, but I found that I thought I was able to address a lot of the shortcomings I saw with other OA lead lists and the way I was producing mine. So that has been sort of this evolution that's happened. That's where I'm at now. There's obviously more to that story, but that's sort of the Cliff Notes version, if that helps. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I mean, I love talking to other sellers and sellers. I mean, there's, there's a natural evolution as you get into the space. Um, like I said, I started with retail arbitrage and then of course, uh, went into private label for, for the same reasons <clears throat> that you talked about going to online arbitrage. Uh, I mean, it, the scalability, scalability of retail arbitrage is limiting, especially when you live on the coast and you can only drive one direction to find places. <laughs> you can, uh, you know, and also you, the quantities you can buy are limited, uh, the amount of time that you're searching for it, but it's also a great way for a low cost entry to getting your feet wet and seeing that seeing if this is a model that you want to do, whatever you go, wherever way you go selling on Amazon, private label arbitrage, you should start with retail arbitrage. You'll learn 90% of the steps involved in what's Correct. in what's going on. Uh, so for anybody listening, go flip something right now. Go, you never, you yeah. never know where we'll go. And, and I think along those lines, you know, for me, the only commodity that you can ever get more of is time. Your time is finite. You have just as much as anybody else in a day. So you have to figure out what your time's worth. And I started doing the calculation of retail arbitrage. Well, it's great. It has great margins, better margins than OA, to be perfectly honest. It does. But there's also a lot of dry holes that you have to drill when you go out on the RA trail. You're going to spend a lot of time in the car, a lot of time checking out of stores, a lot of time scanning things in stores. And you're going to have days where you go out and you blank or find very, very little. And that for me became a huge time suck. And I just, I didn't want to spend that kind of, that much time on the road either, that much time mm -hmm. in a car, that much time with fruitless searches, in my opinion, when I could find a, you know, I can, I can drive to Lowe's Home Improvement and see what they have on their in-camps for clearance, or I can go through and source their website and do it right from home and have it shipped right to me. And it's in blows all over the country, not just the one in my area. So I think that's that's a big mindset change for a lot of people. And it's not right for everybody. Some people love the thrill of the hunt. And I understand that to a degree. Um, going out and finding something that, you know, is marked down in such and such store that there's 30 of them and you can't believe your great luck. Those moments are awesome. I wouldn't take that away from I, I, I love those moments. But I also love the steady, reliable way that you can source OA items that just RA is not the same animal at all. So I think that's a distinct, a, a big difference between the two. Yeah, and I agree totally. I mean, it fits, OA fits my lifestyle better. I mean, I've got a family, I've got kids, I can't be out sourcing all the time. It was interesting, we had a, um, a guest on our last episode who was fascinating. He does retail arbitrage, uh, but his method fit his lifestyle perfectly. He loved to travel and he wanted, right. he, you know, he loved that 
four hour car ride and staying in a small town and sourcing and shipping stuff out of his hotel. And he was making very, very good money doing it. And that's the beauty of this. You, you can make this work the way that it fits you. I mean, what a nice excuse to travel if, if that's your jam, uh, you know? And so, but going back to OA, the scalability and what you've done in terms of sort of outsourcing the things that maybe are not your favorite parts. I, I agree, um, you know, sourcing products and using tactical arbitrage and finding those those areas where there's opportunity. That's a lot of data. It's a lot of a lot of busy work. Um, I really love the the I mean, watching my kids help label products and ship them in and package them and, you know, having stuff. UPS shows up on my doorstep like every every hour, every day, <laughs> every hour. <laughs> Just, uh, so that's been that's been quite fun. But what uh, so let's talk about leads lists. Okay, this is something that you that was a, a tough point for you. Um, you. You started finding some some things that you were not happy with. I'm on a leads list now. Uh, supposedly, it's capped at a certain number of people. Um, you know, but I find things like a lot of products I can't source on there. They've you know they whether or not whether I'm ungate I'm gated for it. Uh, there's hoops to go through, so it shrinks it. And then the ones that are really good opportunities, I find. I sell for a month or two, and then it just gets overwhelmed with competition, and then it's raced to the bottom with price. What what were things that you were frustrated with with lists you were getting? That's a good question, and I I had some of the same issues you were having. I realized that there was duplicates. I was on multiple lists with the same providers in some cases, and they were duplicating leads between the list, which is kind of disingenuous, I think, um, unethical. There were a lot of gated leads, which we can jump into that subject. That's like a whole other subject and something right. I have tried to tackle with my list as well. There, there were errors, which there's going to be some errors, but it should be a, a limited amount, right? I mean, you're paying, you're paying these people to produce leads that are accurate. It's the accurate items between the store website and the and Amazon and so on you know, price is always going to change, but if it's, you know, it says it's a multi-pack and it's really just one, that's not, you know, that's not a price error. That's an informational error. Right. So there's all those issues. And in terms of the number of sellers, that's, you know, I, I question sometimes how many sellers are on some of these lead lists because I think that there are, there are lists out there that are really, they're really strict in how many people they keep on the list. And then there's others where I'm not sure how many people they're sharing it with because I noticed in my research and when I was buying from these lists, I would see the same group of sellers on these leads. And sometimes I would be on list A and find a lead and then I'd be on list B and I'd see the same set of sellers and on list C I'd see the same set of sellers when I went to those product pages. And it made me think, that these are being shared with more people than they say in some cases that could be happening. Ultimately, you know, there's all kinds of issues behind the scenes with online arbitrage lists that we could get into. And I, I really need to do some more content on that because there's a lot of things I think that people need to watch out for. That being said, I will say that producing online arbitrage lead list is no picnic. 
It's not a walk in the park. It's not as simple as it seems on the surface. There's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. And you're basically managing another whole business, which is not the same as selling on Amazon at all. And there are complexities that you have to deal with, all kinds of complexities. But ultimately, if you as an OA leads provider tell your clients, hey, this is what our targets are. This is our minimums. This is what we aim to do. This is what we commit to. You should do that. If you can't do that, you're in the wrong business. You need to go do something different. And there are, unfortunately, unscrupulous OA providers out there that don't always stick to what they tell people they're getting. So I do my best not to be one of those. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of things that you have to watch out for when you start buying these leads lists. Fortunately, most of them are not a huge monetary investment per month. So worst case, you don't like it after 30 days, you can always cancel and move on to something else. So but I think there's quite a bit you need to be on the lookout for. Yeah, I've I've been on some lists that are are clearly shady. Um, the one I'm on now, in full disclosure, I mean, I, I really like it. I think they're approaching it in a, in a similar way that you are, um, you know, but I get the suspicion that even people that are on these leads list, these people who are buying it are sharing it yep. uh, or repotting out. And because I've noticed that in, in a lot of, a lot of occasions where I'm like, you know, this is, this is a, this was a pretty tough find. This is kind of very niche. -y. There's no way that there's all of a sudden 40 sellers on this listing. Um, and, and it, and then it happens, which, which leads me the, my mind can go all over the place on this. Cause I've, I mean, <laughs> I'm having this conversation, which leads me to a conversation of what, what do you do? When let's say you've made a, a buy of, of quite a few units, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what a big buy is for you. You know, I usually, my first order is, you know, usually I, my first order is like enough to qualify for free shipping or a little bit more just to right, test the price. Right. And then second order will be uh, significantly bigger if, if it's all working. Um, but if you, if you get up on a, a listing and all of a sudden it becomes very saturated with sellers, you know, the price goes way below your minimum. Uh, how long do you wait before you make some adjustment on trying to liquidate that or get some of your money back? Is there any like calculation that you have for that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I did, can't speak for everyone. I'm, I'm friends with some larger sellers and their, 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 their way of thinking about it is this. It's more, it's not even just about how many units, it's more about how much you spent because you have a limited capital budget, right? Whatever that is, maybe it's $500, maybe it's $50,000. I mean, it could, it runs a gamut. So that spend is tied up in inventory until you sell that inventory or it gets damaged out. Some percentage that's going to happen to and so on. But let's say that for the most part, it's going to be tied up until you sell it. So the question becomes, when do you, when do you see value in getting that capital back so you can put it in something new? I think the beauty of Amazon to me is that you can realistically flip an inventory. Theoretically, you might even flip it 10, 12 times in a year. You certainly can flip it six times in a year. You can flip all your inventory for the most part within every two months. That is a very quick way to grow. 
if you're making profitable buys and so on, you can really scale up very quickly doing that. And lots of people have followed that model. You won't follow that model if you decide you're going to hold out for your price. Mm -hmm. Your price is not the market's price. The market sets the price, not you. So I look at it this way. Here's the, you're like, Jason, answer the question. <laughs> I look at it as I would rather sell that item quickly and maybe even take less profit and get that capital back and give myself another at bat, shall we say, to hit a home run and settle for the single right now so that I can have another chance. You can't do that with certain minimums that you'll set on what you're willing to accept for a product. I think it's, I think overall it's a good advice for me personally. And I think a lot of sellers have benefit from this. I would set my return on investment numbers pretty low, maybe even down to zero. And the reason is because you need to, if that price keeps dropping down, dropping down, dropping down, you keep missing the buy box. You want to get that product gone so you can get that capital back and flip it into something else. Give yourself another chance to be successful. Because the reality is for a lot of items, especially fast selling items that are sort of middle of the road, bread and butter arbitrage items, once the price starts going down like that, it may never go back up again. So you're going to be stuck there at some arbitrary number forever, just racking up storage fees and losing the opportunity cost of that capital that you had tied up in that, that item. So I think people should be aggressive with their repricers. That's not to say you should penny drop and try to undercut everybody. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I'm saying when you look at that return on investment number, I think a low percentage for most people would get them a lot quicker sell through, um, which also has other benefits for your behind the scenes, Amazon metrics and so on, your IPI scores and all those sorts of things. I think a lot of people shoot themselves in the foot. They approach it like eBay and say, I've got one of a kind here and I'm going to wait two years to sell it. That's not the Amazon model. It just isn't. They're not designed. I, um, I used to work for Amazon. I'm actually wearing a shirt from them right now. They're not designed to store items. They're running out of space and building buildings is really, really expensive. They want products gone. They don't make that much money on storage fees. They make it on transaction fees. So they need those products gone. They don't reward people who keep items in their warehouses forever. So I think if you take all those things into consideration, I think you should always take a pretty aggressive approach to repricing and getting rid of your items. So I hope that answered the question. It does. And that's interesting because uh, first of all, I completely agree. I mean, cash flow is king. You don't want capital <clears throat> sitting in Amazon when, when you've got constant new opportunities to invest money in. You might as well, if you can get that money back quick, even if it's uh, break even or even a moderate loss. That's way better to have yeah. that invested in something that might have a 70% ROI for you and you can get, and you can get that really quickly. So that I, I may have to rethink that because I usually put my minimums at 10% um, ROI um, for anybody who doesn't understand what we're talking about. You, if whatever repricer you, you're, you're using, you can usually set parameters and they're calculating, you know, at what price point is your minimum ROI and your maximum ROI. Um, and then they're repricing it often, usually every minute. I'm not exactly sure what their time frame is on on their repricing, but it helps you win the win the buy box and generate that sale. So, but I may have to rethink that. The zero percent ROI is interesting because my 
thought process setting that up what and my concern was i actually kind of contemplating setting my minimum higher because mm -hmm. i was i was assuming that sometimes i would go into a listing and maybe there was like four or five other sellers and obviously they're using repricers as well and if my low end was super low maybe i'm the reason that it's driving it all the way down and maybe they would have stopped somewhere uh i'm not i'm not 100% sure um is there ever a situation where you set your roi minimums quite high yes um for me and i and i understand your point very well very well i think that you don't want to be the one causing price to tank. So that's what they call it, right? Tanking the price. You know, I drop a penny, then you drop a penny, and then I drop a penny. And before you know it, we're both selling at a loss. And that can happen. Mm -hmm. I think there are instances where, you know, you want to stick at a price. One instance I can think of is if it's an item that's currently unavailable, but in the past it has sold a specific price, there's been a buy box, at least at that price, shall we say, and you saw sales action on Keepa for, I know we're talking about some technical things here, but some people will understand what we mean by that, by that. Then, you know, you can, you can absolutely leave that price there. I think because you've got, you're the only seller at that moment. That's for sure one that I'm not going to just go crazy, you know, dropping the price down because right now I'm the only offer. I may even, add, I may even ask a premium because I'm the only offer at that moment. But on the other hand, if you're selling something that is, let's say there's 150 sellers on it, which is a lot for sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the number of sellers vary. Sometimes it's 100, sometimes it's 200, whatever. And price is kind of fluctuating around the range that you can see on, on Keepa and so on. You know, I think you can realistically, assuming all your metrics are good, you're going to get the buy box in there at some point, probably sell your product, maybe even sell out. You can set a minimum that's maybe just a little lower than what you normally would take just to kind of get it gone because that's the way i look at it let's say that you set your minimum price for something at 30 dollars, and let's say the next day somebody drops their price to 29.97 would you turn away that sale if it was 29.97 for three cents probably not right you would say ah, i should probably get this gone what's three cents it doesn't really matter but people get sticky at a price and they decide it's, oh, it's worth this. Well, yes and no. I like to give myself a chance to win that buy box on those really fast selling items. If it has 150 sellers, it's probably a pretty fast selling item. So I like to give myself a chance to get the buy box somewhere in a range that I'm comfortable. And then I do, I don't know, I don't know about you, Dustin, but I will go back every month or so, at least once a month. And I will look at the items I've had in the warehouse for a few months and I, I group them together in my repricer and I will look at them and say, all right, let's go through and see what's sold, what I still have inventory on and let's make some decisions. Like why have I not sold this? It's been three months. What's going on? Has the price tanked? Um, do I have, is there an error in the listing? You know, something's going on. Like why didn't that sell? I expected it to sell within 60 days. Now it's 90 days and it hasn't. So I, I think that's important to remember too, just going back and checking your repricer settings or your, your inventory that's been there a little while, you need to get that gone. It's just, you know, it's like a, it's like Walmart blowing out the toys the day after mm -hmm. Christmas, right? You can't, you can't keep all the inventory. It's, it's just not smart. Um, so I think there's a lot, there's some complexity around there, but when you use common sense, 
you know, this is really about just sell your stuff, man. You know, it's like, like sell it. That's what you're there to do. You're not there to get a certain price. You're there to sell it. Mm-hmm. And you got to do whatever it takes to do that. So I don't, I don't get too hung up on the number, um, or at least I try not to. What about the flip side of that? Like uh, maximum ROI. Do, do you, because I, I wonder about this too. I had a, a product that was, I still can't believe this one. So it was a, it was a multi-pack of some, some candies that the price was absurd. It was like a four pack for like 60 bucks and they were mm-hmm. selling like crazy. Um, I mean, and my cost was like $6, $7. I mean, it was, it was really bizarre. I mean, it was a huge, huge return. Um, but there was a lot of factors involved. It, everyone thought it had been discontinued, but it wasn't really discontinued. And it was just, everyone loved this, this candy, uh, in certain regions. Um, so, I mean, even the reviews were positive. It's like, can't believe I found them. Like, I can't believe you bought it for 60 bucks. But, um, in a certain, in a situation like that, obviously the buy box is suppressed. Um, you know, that didn't seem to be a negative to me, but are you concerned about uh, like, maybe at a lower price point, you're moving them a lot faster than a higher. So is there like a too high of an ROI maximum that there can be? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think that for me, I tend to look at, okay, so when I source the item, let's say that it was your, your hypothetical candy package and you had good reason to think that this item would sell at $60. So you price it $60 in your repricer when you, when you create your batch, when you send it in, you know, whatever, whatever your repricing schedule is. I like to add a, a minimal amount to that price as my max to start because you're exactly right in that if you put that high price, that max too high, you could end up getting a suppressed buy box, which will decrease your chances to sell it. Let's, let's be real. It just does. Mm-hmm. It's, um, so I think I, I will sometimes look at the max buy box that there's been on the keep graph as well, but as a rule of thumb, I tend to go about, about 10% higher on range for the most part. I feel like that's usually pretty safe. So in that case, you know, you might put a max of $66. And I think a lot of times in that range, Amazon's internal algorithms, you know, they, they realized that, okay, that's not crazy off of what it sold before. Now, I don't have any hard science to tell you that that works, <laughs> but I don't get too many suppressed listings for price. I don't get high pricing errors that way. If you put a 60, if you, if you price at $60 and you put your max at 90 and then your repricer goes in and sees, oh, there's no other listings, push up the price to 90, almost guaranteed that's going to get suppressed. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to be able to get a buy box at that price. So you've got to find a sweet spot and you can always go in again. You can look at items in your repricer that are at their max. A lot of repricers will you know, allow you to filter and say, show me all the ones that are at my max and then see, do I have the buy box? Yes. Could I get even more? Maybe, you know, you may, you can always go in and tweak those upwards a little bit. I don't know if it's really worth it though, you know, because Think about like your example, let's say you put the max at $66 for your $60 item and now it's at 66 and Amazon gives you the buy box. And then you start thinking to yourself, well, could I get 70? Maybe, but is it really worth the $4 to go in and check? I don't know. You know, it's like, it's a time thing there. Like it it would be different if it was, you could get $150 for it. That would be different. But 
I just don't know that it's worth a whole lot of time to worry about that too much. Cause again, we're trying to sell items. So that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah. That that's the part I love. I love the repricing. I love the the strategy of, um, you know, there's a lot of really good repricers out there. Um, you know, I just love going in there, seeing what's going on, making the adjustments uh, to that repricing, seeing stuff move, seeing stuff sell. That is really fun for me. The, mm -hmm. the sourcing part, which you're talking about now, you're helping a lot of people out with your with your lists with that sourcing part. That is definitely more tedious, and I know you've done a really good job of. Um, of outsourcing that part, but you had to put together like the SOPs for that. You had to work with your team. You had to, to define, you know, what, what are the criteria we're looking for to find these products? Now your team's, your team's going out and doing that work. What, what are some of those, you know, tactical arbitrage is great. You know, there's a billion things you can do uh, with tactical arbitrage and, and others like it, but when you're sourcing, what what's like some high point criteria that you're looking for you when i'm sourcing personally yeah, like, or, you know, or like when what are, like what are the things that, like your team when they're i mean are they looking for a um a maximum number of other sellers a certain amount of roi um yeah. obviously rest restrictions or you know anything that could, could pop up uh gated ungated um what i mean just like a, a sample of sort of like a, a, a perfect scenario there, what yeah. you're looking for. Yeah, I think that I try to instill in my team a sense of being a seller. Now that's difficult because my team is in the Philippines. None of them are Amazon sellers. They most likely will never be Amazon sellers. They have been trained to source, but that's a different mindset than being a seller. And I'm the seller who verifies leads before they, they go out. So I do a lot of times like the price, the price has to be supported by the data. Data supports the price. It's not just a, you know, somebody's got the buy box right now at 60 bucks, but it's buy box average has been 35 for the past 90 days. Okay. Well, it might sell for 60, but probably not. Mm -hmm. It's probably going to sell for less than just because Amazon gave them a buy box doesn't mean it was selling that price. Kiba has to support that it sold that price. The amount of profit and ROI and sales per month, those are, we all, we have minimums on those, but our averages are much higher than those. Our averages are like triple the profit on average. And the ROI is, I think, probably two and a half times as much. And the sales per month is way more. So those are minimums that we have on all our lists, which a lot of lists have those as well. We don't want a bunch of IP issues. We use AZ Insight to help prevent that or find, identify those that might be IP issues, certain brands or IP issues as well on Amazon. So we try to avoid those. We don't really do hazmat. We have in the past, but we don't really use it. We don't really do it now. I don't know why. A lot of people love hazmat, but a lot of clients don't like it. <laughs> um, it's very profitable. Uh, we also, you know, we, we spend a good amount of time qualifying the leads and making sure that they're really good. So they get looked at at least twice. They get looked at once when they're submitted by my team, and then they get looked at again right before they go on a list, literally moments before they go on a list. I, I do all that because I know as that seller on the other side of this equation, when I'm buying a list, I realize that those steps were not always being taken by, by other providers. And that was one of the reasons that got me started in this business. 
was, you know, that, as I spoke about right at the very beginning. So I don't want someone who's a subscriber to feel like they cannot trust my leads, that they're going to get a bunch of mistakes. They're going to get a bunch of items that the price really doesn't support what I say it is because it's a terrible customer experience. I feel very disingenuous doing it. And I know how that feels to be on that side of that. So we, we spend a lot of time, uh, me, my team and I around figuring out if something really does work as a lead or not before it goes on the list. And I think you have, cause you would do that if you're outsourcing for yourself, you know, you don't want to go in a store and buy a bunch of RA items and get home and realize you bought the wrong color or mm-hmm. get the wrong listing, you know, or it has a bunch of IP issues, you know, and you, you could get your account suspended for even selling it. You, you don't want to do that. It's a big waste of time and money. Same, same here. I think you have to take the approach, put yourself in the customer's shoes and say, what are their expectations from this list? I cannot promise that you will buy it. I cannot promise that you will think it's a good lead for you, but it needs to meet all the minimum requirements that I set. And you have a set of expectations about the information on that lead and it being accurate. So that's my job is to make sure that's as accurate as it can be. So that that's the approach I take. I hope that I hope that answered what you were going for. I'm not sure I did. <laughs> no, it, it absolutely does. I mean, that, that's the key. I mean, you're, you're, you're taking as much data as you have available to you to, to verify and justify that this will work. You know, it's, and this is the, you mentioned, um, you know, you could do some sourcing and find something that you're like, Oh, wow, this is selling for 60 bucks right now. This is a great opportunity. And then if you look at like the average 90 day buy box price or anything else, and like you mentioned, it's 35, that's a tough one. I get that a lot on some of the lists that I'm on. I'm like, this doesn't seem like a very good opportunity. I could get lucky maybe on my first two or three units that get sold, they could go in at that price, but it's just going to plummet. And then if you see something like that combined with a lot of people, you know, competing for the buy box, I just, I walk away from those. I'm like, "Mm, I don't, I don't, this is, this screams liquidation in 30 days. Well, I think the reason, I think the reason it happens, Dustin, because it's happened to me and I've had to guard against it as well. It's happened on my list early on, especially, I think I'm pretty good about spotting that now. What happens is you've got your VA who's either being paid by the hour or they're being paid by the lead and they have to produce so that you will keep them employed. Mm-hmm. I understand that. That's totally, we do that in this country as well. <laughs> so, but what ends up happening is sometimes is they feel pressure to produce leads. So when they jump on a they jump on a lead and they jump on that product page, they see a price and they say, that's the price and there's a buy box, ah, it's good. Without going any deeper, without looking at the averages over time, without looking at Kiva, without looking at the number of sellers, without looking at any of that information. I even had one VA early on who she was trained to go to the data page on the Keepa information down on the product page on Amazon. And whatever price was there in the new price, that's what she said it was, no matter what it was. And I, I had to train her and say, that is not correct. I don't care what price is right there because that is not necessarily that this item may have never sold for that price. Mm. So, but you have to remember also, there's a whole cottage industry in the Philippines and in these other countries of people setting up training schools for virtual assistants. 
And I'm not sure some of them are all on the up and up either. <laughs> you know, not that they necessarily are nefarious, just that they're not really training these people how to source the way that a seller would look at it. They're training them, well, you just, you, you, you do A, B, C, and D, and you've got to lead. Well, sometimes, but sometimes you don't. And sometimes there's a couple, there's, you know, there's E and F that are over here that you have to consider as well. And I have seen some of that in some of the VAs that have come through my organization where they, they struggle with that at the beginning. And we had to spend a lot of time retraining them to really look at this. I don't expect them to take five or 10 minutes on a lead, but you can't do it in 10 seconds either. So, you know, there's, there's a balance there. They have to, and because I told them, I'm like, if you keep submitting leads that I'm not going to qualify, I cannot keep you employed because mm. it's just a huge waste of time for both of us. Neither one of us makes any money in that case. Yeah. So it's not for anybody, but they're in their defense. They do have some people I think that are a little bit taking advantage of them and some of these schools and courses that they're going through. And they're just about pumping out volume because I get so many uh, VA resumes that say things like, you know, I went through a such and such week score or a week school ran by a $10 million a year seller and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's literally the same thing, copy and pasted on every profile. <laughs> wow. They even give you that too. Here, put this in your profile exactly like this, um, which I'm never that attracted to those candidates. I like the ones who actually write their own, you know, for and, sure. Um, sorry, that, that was kind of a little bit on a tangent off, off topic there, but I think it's important to, to know where your leads are coming from and what the process is behind the scenes. If you're buying an OA list as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's good insights into team building for anybody, what you're, no matter what you're doing. I mean, the, there are so many unbelievably great VAs. I've had some that are, I mean, they want to do really, really well for you. There's a lot of them, but they don't know what well means unless you work through that process. They, you know, they, there's a process of, of, training and tweaking and uh, improving. And, you know, a lot, I have VAs that have worked for me for 10 years and they're amazing, you know, and yep. they keep getting paid more and more and more and more and they earn every bit of it. Uh, but they've been, they've been with me crafting these SOPs and, you know, redoing them, updating them so that we're always moving in the right direction. So I think anybody who's building a team, that's, that's important. There is going to be no VA or employee anywhere that you can just hire and they're going to do it perfectly for you. They, That's correct. They, you, need, you need to invest the time and then they're going to give you a lot of time back um, doing, doing things really well. Uh, okay. You mentioned one thing that uh, caught my attention a second ago. You mentioned hazmat, how hazmat could be really profitable. Um, I, I, I can't sell hazmat. I mean, this would be a good process to talk about. How do you get to be able to sell hazmat? Um, but I've just avoided it anyway, just because hazmat's a scary word. Uh, I don't want anything to happen. Um, but if there's opportunity there, I'm interested. What is how? What what process do you have to go to be able to sell hazmat items? Yeah, it's uh, Amazon has a process. If you go to Seller Central and you type in hazmat in the search box, they will tell you the process to apply. There's different types of hazmat too, like there's aerosol and then there's you know hazardous chemicals and so on. When you say the word hazmat, I think a lot of people go to you know 
guys running around in big protective suits and yeah. picking up beakers. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's not really what a lot of it is. It's also dangerous goods too. Those kind of get lumped together, those two terms. You know, if you send um, certain quantities of say uh, hairspray, that's, that's a, that's a hazmat item because it's an aerosol, it's flammable. And there's a few more things you have to do when you ship that item. They're really not that obtrusive. It's really just, you know, a couple of labels and, you know, declaring a couple things, hey, it's under this amount and so on. There's more expense with hazmat, I think, too, because you end up shipping sometimes to certain fulfillment centers. Not all of them can take hazmat because there are federal and state laws around the transportation of these materials. Um, but going through and, and applying, I don't know what the status is of applications right now. Amazon goes through periods where they allow people to apply and then they don't allow them to apply. And then they give you so much square footage, cubic footage, and then they take away cubic footage. You know, they're always tweaking all that. But I don't think it's a long involved process. You just have to um, go through the steps on Seller Central and the Amazon makes you go through. I feel like it's not that long to do it. And, you know, they'll make a decision. And I have no idea what their decision is based on either, unfortunately. Probably your seller metrics and your history and all that. But I don't I don't think it's that true. I've been able to sell it for a while, so I really don't remember the exact steps. I'm probably not the best person to, to tell everyone. But I would recommend, you know, if you've never tried, at least try to apply and see what happens. All they can do is say no. Yeah. You know, it's not going to really hurt anything. I started the process, uh, but for whatever reason, didn't finish it. I mean, it almost looked like they're just putting you through a training course. Like make they sure are. that you're doing these things, you know, authorize or confirm that you're going to be doing these things. Um, so I may, I may go through that again uh, and complete that and see what happens. I, sh I should have the seller metrics that would qualify. I would think mm -hmm. as long as I answer the training probably, but that would open up, you know, any of those areas where there's, um, you know, where there's going to be less competition because it's a, uh, you know, there's more hurdles to get there there's going to be more opportunity. So I think that that's something that I'll certainly uh, explore more of that. So I'm glad you brought that yeah. particular one up. Um, well, and I would just mention real quickly also, don't forget that things like lithium ion batteries are considered hazmat. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, if it's something that's got a certain size battery. I don't know what the size is. You can't sell it unless you're approved to sell hazmat, which there's a lot of things with lithium ion batteries. You know, so it's a dangerous goods. So it's like, why not get approved to do that? That opens up a whole lot of things you wouldn't normally think about. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, I know I know we're going along here, but this is a, such a fun conversation. I got two more questions. Um, something that happened to me. Uh, clearly, whoever put this uh, lead on this list messed up a little bit. It was a uh, it was a, a shampoo or a conditioner uh, that was everything was in Spanish. It was like a a, really, a fairly popular, I guess, Spanish product. So it was in a different language. It was in Spanish and I ordered it, but the the link to the store to order it linked to, I guess, the conditioner when it was supposed to be shampoo, shampoo on the mm -hmm. list. So I ordered the wrong product, sent it in. I had no idea. I was just going through there. I kind of go through it kind of fast. I do a simple vet of it, but got in got a whole bunch of uh, negative customer experience, you know, wrong product, this, they suppressed the listing for me. Um, and I had to just bring it all back, close it down. You know, those are things, sometimes those are really hard to catch. 
uh, I mean, it could be, uh, I see this too, where the product packaging has been changed, you know, right. they've modernized and now you're buying like the older product and then you get, so, I mean, how thorough are you really digging in to make sure this is exactly the right, and have you, I mean, I'm sure you've seen situations like that yourself as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's good. It's a good, you need a good process to catch those because I've had VAs submit things along those lines. Shampoo conditioner is a great one. That's an easy mistake to make. And I've caught it. I've had ones where I've missed it and then caught it before it went out, which, so it didn't go out to anybody. And then I've had a few that went out and then clients told me, <laughs> never the right, which is never a great feeling. Mm -hmm. um, which of course I immediately, you know, deleted and apologized, you know, because we're going to make mistakes. Um, I think the process starts with, you know, having very detail oriented team members, having multiple eyes look at something before it actually makes its way into a client list. And then, and then also knowing where the, the common problems are, because there are certain car current, current, there's certain problem areas that you will see over and over in a listing. You know, the little two pack written in the top of the photo, right. but not yeah. the quantity. you know, I, I do one simple thing with anything that I'm a little bit unsure, even a little unsure on exactly what the item is, or it's not super clear. Usually I just throw it away, but if I think there's any way to save it, I go to the reviews. I read the reviews because a lot of times the reviews will say things like, says that this was a two pack, only got one, one star, <laughs> you know, and then that immediately becomes a no, you know, for the lead, because at that point, like, I'm not going to have somebody risk that. So I think there's things you can do like that as a leads provider. There's knowing I, I provide my team with a uh, photograph, a screenshot of an Amazon product page where I've circled all the places you might find quantity. <laughs> it's about five different places on the listing. Mm. You, you can find quantity. So, you know, know these are there because you need to look at all these and some items you don't need to look as hard. You know, if it's a, you know, if it's a Columbia jacket for $150, probably not a two pack. Right. You know? so, but on the other hand, if it's a beauty item or it's a food item, absolutely you need to look or certain clothing accessories, you know, those can often be packaged. Um, you know, other categories aren't, it's not as common. So I think you've got to you got to have multiple layers. You got to have a trained team. You got to have a process to vet leads, and then you got to cross your fingers and hope a little bit, Dustin, that you get it right. <laughs> exactly. It's you can always good. you can always apologize and solve the problem later, but you don't want too many of those for, for sure. sure. Um, and and multi packs I find fascinating. I mean, uh, uh, usually those are some of the most profitable, my favorites. Um, you know especially for lower priced items uh, like rice packs or instant rice or something like that. You mean you can get those for a dollar, but you can do a multi-pack of six or 12 and then you can sell it for quite a bit. Your ROI can go up. Plus, plus most of the actual brands themselves aren't selling in those right. quantity types. It's like, it's a listing that's been created. Um, so, I mean, those, those are really fascinating opportunities. Which brings me to my last question in food or anything that has an expiration date. This, I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to best operate with this uh, because a lot of time, I mean, from my understanding, 
when you ship something into Amazon and they require an expiration date, it's got to be like 120 days or something like that. Um, otherwise, they won't let you put the expiration date right. in there and they won't let you ship it in. Right. So, but sometimes you order something and the expiration that you ordered, you, you don't know what the expiration date is or what they're going to ship you. Um, at, or maybe there's a trick. Maybe you do. I don't know. Um, but what do you do with the product that, let's say, the expiration date's uh, 60 days from now? You got 100 of them. What? Yeah. Do you, do, is there, I mean, if you cheat on that expiration date, if the fast mover, I mean, what, what do you do there? And what, is there any recourse from Amazon that that's a negative? Uh, and I'm sorry to keep ad, adding on to this, but a lot of products don't have expiration dates that Amazon requires an expiration date for like, like yeah. makeup stuff. Like there's, there's nothing on the box, nowhere, but I have to put one in. I mean, how do you, how do you, what's your standard procedure for something like that? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky situation. I, I think if you're, if it's a, if you, if the expiration date is very soon, relatively soon compared to what Amazon says, um, then I think that um, if you put a fraudulent date in there, it's not Amazon is going to catch you. It's the customer. Right. And right. then Amazon's going to catch you. <laughs> so right. you're going to get it. You're going to get it twice and you're not going to probably lose your account over the first time, but you could get suspended, um, you know, because they take that stuff seriously. And sure. I understand that there's liability for all of us. I find that when I buy things like makeup is a, is a tough one for me. I'm kind of the opinion. If there's not an expiration date on it, I put one out far enough, at least the way that it will be gone before then. Because with makeup, there's not really any risk right. that I'm aware of or have ever heard of or read that you're going to make someone sick or ill or, you know, I, I guess supposedly someone could have allergic reaction if some type of ingredients no longer were combining the way they should because they had expired. But it's not like you drink bad milk and you're going to have right. to go to the hospital. Um, right. It's not that kind of situation. Food is, food is a little tricky because of that, you know, and I think that it depends on who you order from. If you order food from Walmart or Target, it's probably going to be an expiration date out far enough. You have no problem. If you order it from, you know, some random grocery site, even if, even a grocery store, because I can't tell you how many times in my RA days I've gone into grocery stores and gone to their clearance rack and they're selling things that are expired. Mm -hmm. Food and makeup. They do it all the time. And I'm pretty sure what's interesting about that is I'm pretty sure like their agreements with those, you know, as a, as a seller of those items, their agreements with the distributors and those brands, they would tell them, no, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they don't, they don't want that liability either. They don't want somebody coming back and say, Hey, product such and such from this brand may be sick. Um, but it happens all the time. I think, you know, worst case you have to eat it and sell it on an eBay and say, here's the expiration date. Right. You know, eBay is a lot more, you know, a lot looser about that. I don't like to sell things. I sold something one time on eBay and it was a, it was a diaper rash paste. It was called butt paste. <laughs> it was very popular and you can oh, pick yeah. up the dollar store and bundle it together and sell it for a, a good premium. And I sold one on eBay once that a lady, uh, she, she sent me like the nastiest email <laughs> because it was expired by the time it got to her. I think when I sold it, it was like the date it expired, right. literally the date. 
And, and um, she got very mad because she was like, I will never put this on my child. Blah, blah. It was this whole big thing. And I'm like, not worth that. Not worth that risk. You know, it's like, if you got to eat it and take a loss, you take a loss. Yeah, that's something I've been, yeah, dealing. I mean, also I get you order a hundred units of something and the expiration dates are all over the place on them. It's like, I can only have one field to enter one expiration. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know, average it out, whatever. Jason, I know we're right up on time and there, I, I have got to get you back on because we haven't even talked about liquidation or like ungating or reprice or strategy. I mean, there's so, there's so much involved uh, in this. I'd love to, uh, I'll definitely put that on my list. We'll get you back on some other feature and go down, go down some more rabbit holes because uh, this conversation's fascinating. I mean, this is a conversation that absolutely anybody, zero experience, lots of experience selling on Amazon, whatever. You could start this tomorrow. You could start this kind of business tomorrow and have your first product flipped within a week. I mean, it's, it's an amazing opportunity, um, which we didn't even talk that much about the, the state of the, uh, of, of OA currently in the future, but we covered a lot of it. It's, there's tons of opportunity out there. And I want to give you a chance now, because I know a lot of people are listening. They're like, okay, Jason's the real deal. He, he's, <laughs> he's working. He's, he's very thorough in what he's doing. I would love to uh, either get started with this or I'm doing it currently. And I would, I'm very interested in, in the lists. Where can people go to um, to find out more information about your list, find content that you put out, get in touch with you, all that? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think the the easiest place, you know, if you're interested in online arbitrage and lists and so on, theprofitmind.com, theprofitmind.com. Um, that's where we we have some links to our list and what we do and so on. It's, you know, pretty basic website, but it'll give you some great information. You can also find me at the Profit Mind group on Facebook. We just recently launched that group and it's growing. I think we're about 100 members and, and moving forward. Nice. Um, so either one of those will be a great place to reach out. Send me a message if you have a question or something came up or, you know, something sparked your curiosity from this podcast. Um, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'd love to hear from you and um, get your thoughts. That's awesome. Well, I will make sure that all those links are in the description um, so everyone can check you out. Jason, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us. Great insights. Love the passion. Love it. That, you know, it's it's fun. It's a, it's a fun game. It's a fun way to either side hustle or create a whole new lifestyle. I mean, there's, there's tons and tons of opportunity. So appreciate the time. And I appreciate everyone who tuned in today for this. If you like content like this, make sure you're subscribing to our podcast. You can also see all the live streams, um, all of our past guests, great guests like Jason. Um, you can see that on Solozo's social media platforms, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to those as well. Turn on notifications so you get notified when we go live. Uh, tons of great content. We do these um, all the time multiple times a week we have great guests on so subscribe to those uh, additionally if you're currently selling on amazon private label wholesale anything where you're using uh amazon's advertising to promote your products uh, if that is a pain point for you or you would like to get that time back uh, i'd love to show you the solozo platform we can fully optimize and automate your amazon advertising for you you can check us out at solozo.com. You can schedule a demo and I'll chat with you. I'll walk through the platform. We can talk 
no matter what your business is, I love talking with uh, e-commerce sellers and Amazon sellers and showing them the power of the Saloza platform. So Saloza.com, check it out. All right, everybody, that is it for today. Thank you, Jason, for joining us. And thanks for everybody for tuning.